right, everyone. Welcome back to On Biblical Scholarship. My name is Eric Roseberry. I'm a pastor in Lafayette, Indiana, and a New Testament PhD student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Joining me today is Dr. Drew Johnson. Dr. Johnson's an associate professor of biblical and theological studies, and he's also the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought at the King's College, New York, and his most recent book, Biblical Philosophy, a Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments is available through Cambridge University Press. Dr. Johnson, how are you doing today? Excellent. How are you doing, Eric? Good. Glad to have you on. And I have to say, as I was doing some background reading, you have one of the more interesting paths to biblical scholarship that I think I've I've read, given what's in your background. So I know you've spoken about this elsewhere, and, and people can find that. But uh, as much as you want to get into, what was your path to biblical studies, and what initially got you interested in the idea? Uh, it's funny because you said interesting paths, and and I thought I never thought about it as a path to biblical studies. I always, if anybody's ever seen the movie Yellow Beard, um, I don't, I'm just kind of out of fashion now. But <laughs> he, the way he finds his treasure is like kick, stumble, roll, crawl, stumble, roll. Yeah, a lot of it is just um, I was doing one thing and interested in topics that I kept pursuing, and then stumbling into opportunities. Yeah. Um, which, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, every once in a while I'll have somebody who says like, Hey, I want to do, I'm a pastor. I want to do what you're doing. You did, uh, how did you do it? And I'm like, well, you stumble backwards into five different things. And, um, you know, by the sovereignty of God, meet the right person at the right time that you weren't even intending to ever talk to. And like, sure. you know, it's those kind of things. So, um, I certainly, you know, I dropped out of high school, joined the military right when I turned 17, which really I, I'm now realizing, you know, that I work with mostly freshmen and th- all undergraduates, I realize how much work that did for me mm. that a lot of people don't get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a, a lot of the work of the military for me was, well, A, I, I failed out of high school. So I just didn't know how to study. And I was in the Air Force. And so the standards, you know, I went through a year of training um, where, you know, it was eight hours a day studying really abstract radar theory and telecommunications and you took tests every week. And if you got less than 85%, they washed you. And then you do that two or three times. They just kick you out and turn you into a bus driver. Okay. Um, so the stakes are really high. And so yeah. I had to learn how to study, pay attention to detail, follow instructions. Uh, and, and I now look back and realize how formative that was uh, for me, even in, in when I went on to undergrad. I was talking to a colleague today who said um, he was talking about the admissions problem process in the Princeton department where he did his PhD and he was asking them, you know, they had hundreds of applications and they're like, isn't it difficult to sort through those? And they said, Oh no, we kick 50% of them off the stack because they just didn't follow instructions. Mm. Um, and so, so I've actually never talked about this before, but yeah. I, I'm now kind of like revisiting everything that how I got to where, uh, where I am today. Um, not like I'm on a mountain or anything, but just kind of how I stumbled this direction Part of it, well, it's not intellect. A lot of it was just like I, I put in the hours of work. I have a decent work ethic. I'm a yeah. Gen Xer, so you know we know how to work. We, we know how to put our heads down and work. And we don't know how to do lots of other things, but that's one thing we know how to do. Yeah. Um, and I and I was just curious. I was just interested in why things way the the way they were. And so psychology was my undergrad because I was really curious about human behavior. I think a lot of Gen Xers are because they came from broken homes and kind of screwed up uh, situations and. Um, and then when I went to seminary, I was really curious about how theology deals with um, 
science. That was like one of my big interests that wasn't that itch was not scratched a lot in seminary. Yeah. A, a bit it was because I studied with this woman named Esther Meek, uh, who writes on Michael Polanyi and Polanyi is a scientist turned philosopher. So I got a bit of that. Um, but I knew something was different for me when I finished seminary and seminary was grueling for me. I mean, it was the hardest academic thing I'd ever done. And yeah. even to this day, you know, I did two more masters after that or most two another master's and most of a THM and a PhD in the four year MDiv at covenant seminary was still one of the most academic yeah. things I've ever done in my life. And, uh, but as, I, as soon as I finished it, I was like, well, I feel like we barely even scratched the surface of the thing. I want more, you know, I need yeah. to, Within three weeks, I was enrolled in a master's in philosophy, and, mm. and I started working as a pastor. I was I switched from part time pastor to full time pastor at that point, and um, and as I went along, it was just you know I got a little dispirited studying philosophy because I was like, really, this is all the answers you have over here in analytic philosophy? I was like, I was expecting so much more. I thought you guys had figured some things out, but you're like still asking the same questions and. Um, and then after I finished that, I was like, well, I want to go back and do more biblical studies. And after I, uh, worked on all the THM coursework, I was like, well, I need to, like, I feel like I have a clear bead on what I really want to figure out here. Um, and that's essentially when the, I was, uh, I accidentally met this guy, um, through a friend, uh, at St. Andrews and we had a discussion in which at the end of the discussion, he just said, Hey, would you like to come do a PhD with me? which he was a full professor, which in the British side, there's only one professor per department. So he was the professor. I did not even know it during the discussion, but that meant he basically admitted me into the program at that point. Oh, by, sure. it's, it's like a fiat kind of thing. Like everything else was pro forma after that. Um, yeah. And, and it, it just happened to be a guy who understood my interest and was willing to bring in. So he's a Bartian systematic theologian. So that's who I did my PhD with, believe it or not, was under a systematic theology professor. Mm. Uh, but he was willing to bring in a Pentateuch scholar, Nathan McDonald, uh, and then bring in a Mark scholar because I was working on the synoptics and eventually whittled it down to Mark. And so he he brought in these people to kind of help co-supervise and, and yeah. make sure and hold me accountable for what I was writing. Yeah, when you were going through that process, what do you think the benefit was of having someone overseeing your research who maybe wasn't specifically in the discipline you were trying to to do? What 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 did you take from that that might have been helpful that other people don't get? Oh man, uh, so I, I maybe I'm maybe I'm just so um, entrapped in this way of thinking I can't think outside. I can't see it any other way yeah. now. But I'm like, oh, why doesn't everybody do this? I mean, I know yeah. a lot of PhD committees have people from other departments as kind of like a stopgap checking and making sure that like the sanity check. Right. But they were just asking such different questions. Mm. Um, you know, my Pentateuch and I, you know, Nathan McDonald, God bless him. He's a great scholar. I don't think he ever really liked what I was doing. <laughs> um, but man, I mean, I tell people he would send that, you know, on Microsoft Word with the comment feature, it's over in mm -hmm. the right hand column. Yeah. Uh, I would get my chapters back from him and that right hand column would extend for another 10 pages <laughs> past the last page of the chapter with questions and comments and yeah. critiques. And, um, and it, it, I was just so grateful because I realized what he was doing for me was saying like, look, I hear what you're saying, but the way you're saying it is not how biblical scholars can hear you. So let me let me help you understand how we can hear this better. And, um, and I think through that process, I kind of I don't like to, I, I mean I, I don't I don't think of myself as a biblical scholar technically because um, 
I only know Hebrew and Greek. I don't know Aramaic or Ugaritic or anything else. And, um, in the ancient languages and, you know, and I really just kind of do a lot of literary, not a whole lot of historical criticism. I just do literary reading. So, uh, in that sense, I'm a very one trick pony, uh, biblical scholar, but, um, I, I don't think I could have ever on my own and I'm sure some people could, but I couldn't have ever gotten into their heads and asked the kinds of questions that I mm. needed to have put to me. Yeah. Uh, and what happens instead is, and I saw this with other people, I still see it today where they stay in their little schools of thinking, you know, you stay in your silo or your micro silo even. And then by, by the time you get to, you know, cause I've been an external examiner as well. By the time you get to the point where that other person is asking those questions, everything's kind of already, the, the concrete is setting and you can't really change much about it. Yeah. And then you just have people who are like mildly dissatisfied with, with the project and like, Oh, if we had just caught this earlier, it could have been, it could have actually spoken so much more prolifically if you had addressed these other issues. Mm. As you were going through that process, writing the dissertation for most people, that's the first major project of that scope mm. they work on. What are some of your takeaways from that time, either as just kind of research and writing some things you learned personal lessons you learned about yourself, what just kind of stuck with you from that time? Yeah, I, I well, I learned a lot. I mean, I'm also, an, I think I'm a weird case, not a completely weird case, but, um, you know, I didn't start until my mid thirties, which that's, that's true of a lot of people in religion, yeah. theology, like that's, that's more common. Um, but when I went to St. Andrews, uh, I was ready to hit the ground running. I, I, I actually hit that point where I was like, oh, I don't need to sit in another lecture hauling again. Right. Um, I know what I want to research. I can read the books on my own, which that just took me a long time to get to that point where I felt that confident. So for me, the idea of a desk and a library card and just the time mm. to write felt like the, the most premium luxury. And okay, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here. I'm going to just sure. kind of state factually my experience. <laughs> but one of the things, and it's not just me, many people notice this, you know, I worked in the corporate world too, uh, all the way through seminary and IT. And I think there's something about like that ability to sit down and just work for 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week uh, that goes a long way. And I think pastors know how to do it. And yeah. as a pastor, you have to learn how to self-manage your time, right? Sure. Like that you have to. Um, and so that, that kind of general work ethic and my PhD supervisor said, like he was big on this issue as well. He's like, if you just calculate the number of hours it takes to write one good, well-researched page and you calculate that out, it really is a, about a year and a half of work if you mm -hmm. just sit down and do it. Yeah. So as long as you know what you want to write on, you kind of know what you need to research, you have access to the research and you have the time, um, the PhD shouldn't take that long. Now, a lot of people don't have the luxury of all, they, maybe right. they don't know quite what they want to research or their supervisor is messing with them or not getting back to them quickly or whatever. So I think my biggest question going into the writing, which in the British program, there's no classes. You just sit down and write. Um, I think I had this big question, like, can I actually do this? A, can, oh. can I sustain my thinking? Can I like hold this thesis in my head and carry that out over six chapters or whatever? Um, can I, can I write this out? Like I have, I think I have some things clear in my head, but can I actually write that out in a way that people can understand? The answer is no. I went back and read my district. I was, I was examining a dissertation. I was like, Oh my goodness, the, this writing is horrible. And I felt like God spoke to me in that second and said, 
go read your dissertation right now. And I opened it up and read the first couple of pages. I was like, oh, okay, this is just what you have to do. <laughs> right. And then you realize some people write their write very well in their dissertations. And I'm sure people are very thankful for that. Um, so the big existential questions, can I do this? Will what I say make sense? I was doing something interdisciplinary. So like the number of times that I explained my thesis project to people and them going, you can't do that. You can't talk about the Pentateuch and the gospel of Mark. Like, what are you trying, who do you think you are? Like, what are you trying to do? You know? So I had to deal with that kind of criticism, which is fair enough. Um, and, uh, and then can I just sit down and do this week after week after week and not get tired of it? Um, and, and to my delight, I, like I, I really never tired of it. I, you know, I, I finished the dissertation. I was like, all right, what's next? Where do you know, where do we go from here? So yeah. with your own writing and research now, how have you either set up your schedule or what intentional decisions have you made to allow mm-hmm. writing and research to be an ongoing part of your life, given all your other responsibilities? Well, one easy way to make it part of your life is get yourself bound up in a bunch of contracts where you <laughs> Get some deadlines. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where that, where it's like, and there's money on that deadline where you like, you have to pay money back if you don't meet that Mm. deadline. Yeah. So, um, that's, uh, that's part of it. And also, and I, I talk about this a lot with colleagues when people, cause I'll hear people say like, if you have 30 minutes, write 30 minutes, you know? Um, and a lot of friends of mine, you know, who've been around, who, who have kind of lasted, because some people get into academia, they hang out for a couple of years, decide they're not so much into it and they leave. So, but the ones that have been in 10, 15 years now, I think a lot of us are like, yeah, have you read the people's writings who write 30 minutes at a time? Like there really is that kind of, maybe there's a few people who can pull that off. And I do know a few people that actually pull that off quite well. But for me, it's like, okay, Christmas break, I'm going to work on this one thing the whole time. Summer break, I've got a project lined up and all I'm going to do is be re- I'm going to be editing for the third time a book manuscript that was due last January that the, you know, that the, the publishers are being very generous with me about uh, turning it in late. Um, and coming in, and when I come in to the office, I, I also keep a very regular rhythm. I go work out at Planet Fitness on Broadway at Wall Street here. <laughs> $10 a month. There's there you a go. plug. I work out, come into my office, sit down, clear out any emails that are emergency, and then start working on that. Break for lunch, keep working on it, and then go home at the end of the day. And I don't think about it. At, I'll think about it on the way home about what I'm going to do tomorrow. And then after that, I'm at home. So there's a lot of that kind of rhythm, uh, ritual, uh, using my route to work because I have to walk and take a subway, uh, but using that route to work time, not to listen to podcasts, but just think about, um, think about what I'm going to do for the day. Mm -hmm. And on the way home, think about what I'm going to do the next day. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I think the temptation is, yeah, just to have so much noise all the time. There's not just that free space you're talking about to get the thoughts together and stuff as you, I'm sure you have students who come to you and ask this question from time to time. I'm thinking about a PhD. Maybe this is for me down the road general pieces of advice you give a student asking that question well we have all undergrads so i never get the i'm thinking about a phd okay. they're always i want to be a professor and i'm like well that's not a job so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like that's like saying i want to be a rock star or yeah. a screenwriter for a sitcom like i mean there technically is a position that is paid for that but those are so few and far between you can't think of them as yeah an occupation um 
So, so then I just start asking like motivations. Uh, so for Christian, cause not all of our students are Christian, but for Christian students, um, I start early and often talking to them about a sense of calling uh, to this. Um, yeah. And uh, same thing for me. And I mean, I, I'll very honestly say, I feel like God kept me from doing a PhD right out of undergraduate because my whole identity would have been stoned into it. Uh, and, and he delayed it for what, 12 years before I eventually went on. And by that time, I didn't care whether I had a PhD or not. the PhD was merely to the things that I felt God was calling me to do. Um, so there's a little bit of that. I try to suss out whether they're, you know, a lot of people do it just because they think it's the natural path. Um, my coworker, Selena here, she got a full ride to a top tier PhD program in philosophy, went and quit after two years. Cause she's like, I don't want to do this. Like, this is yeah. not my thing. And, and she could have made a f- prolific career out of it, like super intelligent. Um, she could have been great at it, but she just decided she didn't like it. So try to suss out motivations. Do you like, um, and then like, are you jazzed about something? Is there something that you wake up in the morning and think like, man, I wish I could work on that issue for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really hard for undergrads, but I think for people who've finished seminary, you got to, you have a better sense of like how your interests are sustained over time. And you either get a growing sense of interest or there's a problem where you really think everybody has missed the boat on this thing. Um, and, and, uh, that, and, and that it bothers you. Like, so right now the whole heaven hell discussion thing is like drives me crazy. Mm. So I'm thinking, <clears throat> so right now I'm thinking, is that the next project after the ones I've already agreed to? Is that like the next one? Because every time someone says, uh, talks about going to heaven or hell, I'm just like, but that's not what the biblical literature is doing. You know, should we, should the church be having a completely different discussion? And of course there's been people, you know, Tom Wright has um, hinted away at this stuff uh, quite a bit. Um, And Richard Middleton as well. So that, but that's one of those things, like, am I just being, old crotchety man, get off my front lawn with this, or is this something that really matters? And, um, and so and surprisingly, most people who want to do a PhD that I talk to haven't even thought about that. They're worried. They were like me worried about, can I do this? Am I smart enough? Um, and uh, that's all I wanted my professors to tell me when I was initially is like, am I smart enough? Do you think I'm intelligent? It was like completely this narcissistic, um, insecurity issue that was going on with me. Um, and which is funny because then you realize when you get in the PhD program, and I'm sure you realize this as well, you know, there are, there are people in the program where you're like, okay, you're way smarter than me. You've been reading stuff since you were like 12. Yeah. I didn't start reading anything in serious theology or biblical studies until I was in my 20s. Um, didn't read any philosophy until I was nearly 30. Um, and and so that and and then there were people like me who were just like trying to keep up with the conversations, you know. Um, and so you kind of have to learn, and that's why the sense of calling and the sense of purpose for being there is so important because that stuff will drive you crazy otherwise. Um, but if and also for us personally, like our I had four small children when I did the PhD. Uh, two of them are not white and quite honestly had to deal with a lot of issues of racism in the school in Scotland. It's still a, a mildly racist culture. Yeah. Uh, and the British culture is mildly racist kind of as a norm, <clears throat> like a lot of places. And, um, and we didn't have any money. We 
didn't turn on our heat the entire time we lived in Scotland. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty miserable existence. Just week to week in and week out was pretty miserable. Didn't have a car. So you just, which is fine, but you just are wet a lot of the time. Uh, yeah. It kind of reminded me of being in the military, working in the Amazon. You're just like <laughs> wet and soggy and miserable a lot, you know? And, uh, and uh, if I, if me and my wife were not both steadily convinced that we, that's where we were supposed to be, like it would have been really bad on our marriage. It would have been really bad for our kids. And yeah. so that's the stuff that I worry about first. It sounds weird, but it's that like, uh, where, where is God in this discussion? And then once you get that sorted out, I'm like, I think you can, you can do almost anything if God is with you on this front. Like you can, he'll provide for you. Like the food will take care of itself. The study, even if it goes sideways on you, it'll be okay. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You brought up the whole, can I do this piece? And I've talked to a number of fellow students or Twitter, biblical studies, this will come up. How did you push through those moments? Because, yeah, I think everyone hits that. I've just moved into dissertation phase, and there's this realization of like, oh, I'm actually contributing to the conversation now, and I should right. not be allowed to do this. So for <laughs> for people listening, maybe yeah. me, yeah, how did you find yourself just personally getting over that mental obstacle? I I don't know if I've ever gotten over that. I I actually deeply believe like, you know, if you're just trying to pick up social cues and like at SBL or, or ETS or one of those places. Yeah. It's an interesting place uh, to try and do that. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, howdy. You just said a mouthful. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure, and I don't think this is me overreading the situation. I'm pretty sure the scholars that I get put on panels with kind of think I'm a little bit of an idiot. And, <laughs> and, I, and I probably agree with them on the parts. Like if I'm just being like completely honest, yeah. I think a few of them think I'm not like up to snuff. And I think they're probably right um, on some stuff. And so that hasn't gone away. It's been more me realizing like, okay, I'm sitting next to this scholar who's a really big deal. I'm critiquing their work. Um, I think my critique has something to it, but they can clear it. Like my cards are on the table now and they can clearly see, I don't know as much as I should. Right. Um, And I don't have it as worked out as I should have have it worked out by this point in my life. Um, And I, I guess I'm just at the point where I'm like, I'm okay. Cause I really do feel like God has put me in this place and this is like, what else, what else am I going to do? Um, so there's a weird confidence in even being kind of a slight idiot and being an idiot. And, and, and I'm not like, I'm not deprecating all over myself. Right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty aware of who's at where, I mean, I know who the big shots are. I know who the real scholars are as far as like intellectual prowess and depth of depth of knowledge and I know I don't come close to measuring up to them, but I still have to interact with them like at a professional level. I'm going to a conference or I'm in this workshop. I shouldn't admit this publicly, but I'm in this workshop uh, that I've been involved with in Denmark before that's now moved to Germany with a Syriologist and Egyptologist and Hebrew Bible people. And so it's like um, thinking about philosophy in the ancient Near East more generally. If you've never been around Egyptologists and a Syriologist, I have typically yeah. okay, so they are creepy smart. Like it, yeah. I did not know this going into this, but like okay, start with they all know seven languages non outside of the Romance languages in Hebrew and Greek, right? Uh-huh. Uh, they've all read everything. They're all European because most Americans can't hang with them because the Europeans start with several languages as children. Right. So like when I'm in that room, 
Like there is no doubt whatsoever that I don't know anything compared to these people. Um, but they keep inviting me back. I don't know if I'm like their, um, what do you call it? Like their quota, like they need, <laughs> like in their system, they're like, yeah. well, we probably need a Hebrew Bible guy who's an actual Christian. So we'll just invite this guy or whatever. But, um, but I think, so that to say, I've been doing this for 17 years or so, um, you know, teaching at the college level and being involved in conferences and this kind of academic work. And that has not gone away one bit. In fact, mm. it's only become more real because what I used to think my imposter syndrome I used to have, I realized was really just mostly insecurity. And now my imposter syndrome is accurately tuned. <laughs> right. I, <laughs> so, yeah. 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 No, oh, that's helpful. Uh, you did bring up conferences. And so we just came out of conference proposal season for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, yeah. For uh, PhD students or maybe people who are interacting in that space for the first time, any general advice for how to make the most of conference experiences for the doctoral student? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would look – okay, so there's kind of a utilitarian approach to conferences where you just need to get you need to get anything in any, you know, SBL, you just need to get something in there. Yeah. Or maybe for some people, ETS, you just, I think ETS is actually harder to get papers mm. in because they're, it, I may be wrong. It feels like a lot more cronyism is going on in ETS yeah. um, or SBL is a little bit more because there's just so many members. It's not as cronyistic. Um, and I know that because I have friends who are like program leaders and I've been a program leader before and had to turn down front. Like I, you know, I've gotten yeah. proposals rejected by people who I really like and, uh, and I think maybe even slightly respect me. So, um, so there's that whole side to it, um, that you might need to do it just, uh, but the, I think of conferences more as like, uh, a way to test out some ideas and get good feedback. So if you are working on Paul, uh, you know, Jewish Paul or Paul and Paul within Judaism or, um, you know, that I know there's lots of different schools of Paul, right? So, uh, if you're working on one of those topics, if you want good feedback, forget about whether it's ETS or SBL, you need to go to the session where there's going to be a lot of Paul people who can hold you accountable. Yeah. You may go to ETS and you'll get a bunch of yuckos like me that are mildly interested in Paul and want to try and think about them. But I, I don't know the literature that well. And, yeah. I'm not going to actually help you sharpen your thinking or uh, save you from making a fool of yourself because you didn't know this one scholar that you should have known. Right. Um, so uh, I, w- I think of it more strategically uh, of the, the only good, the only good things that come out of conferences for me are I, I sharpen my thinking because of the people who are in the room. If that's not going to happen, then I'm not as worried about it. Now, I say that as somebody who's like not worried about getting a job or right. getting something published at this point. So um, I do – well, here's what I would say. Go to SPL a few times and sit in the rooms in which you think you might want to s- submit papers yeah. and get to know those people and hear how they talk. Because you might – you know, there's a – theology of the Hebrew Bible section, for for instance, and technically I should, you know, like when you read the description, it feels like I should be presenting something like that every time. But I sat in there a few few times. I'm like, oh, they mean theology in a completely different way than I'm thinking about theology. And actually I could present something here, but they're not going to be that interested in it. And the critiques aren't going to be that helpful for what I'm trying to do. So really uh, get acclimatized, get used to rejection I have students, we're in New York City, so I have students who are like professional models and professional actors yeah. and, and musicians. 
And when they tell me about their world of auditioning, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's academics. <laughs> like it's exactly the same. You get yeah. a lot of rejections. Uh, and it's just, you know, sometimes it's just because you're not good enough. Sometimes you're not right, uh, you know, uh, or you're not right for the part or whatever. Uh, so get used to that and then look for the best way to sharpen uh, the argument. Because at the end of the day, and this is the part that nobody ever tells you for probably for good reason, is you can like, look, you can get anything published. If you pull the right levers, uh, you, you can get your stuff published. It, it, for me, I thought that was the big thing. Like, oh, you got to get it published. And then I got my first book published. And then I realized, wait, everybody is going to now hold me accountable to everything I said yeah. in that book. And I, and I actually, like a year later, I kind of became horrified because I'm like, I don't know if I even thought that out well enough to say that sentence that I have there, you know, and right. fortunately nobody's caught it yet. The one that I'm most worried about, but, um, but, but it, it kind of flips on you all, to all of a sudden, especially if you're a decent writer um, and, and especially if you have a good work ethic, publishers will figure that out and they'll come to you and they'll say, and, and, and it's, it's no longer you're asking to get something published. They're asking you, Hey, would you write a book on this? Hey, would mm. you contribute it? And, and then all of a sudden um, you can get, uh, what do they call it? In front of your skis uh, yeah. where you're writing things um, and you're probably technically shouldn't be writing them. But um, so I think use the conferences to, to get you back into centered on your skis and get your, get your mind sharpened uh, as much as you can on the topic and not as a social club where like, Oh, I got to present here to prove to all of these people right. that I, and okay. So I know I'm jabbering on about this, but I really do feel strongly um, that you don't have to play all the typical social games of academia to like get along. I don't play those games yeah. at all. And everything has gone fine for me. Like, mm -hmm. um, and if anybody's ostracized me, I'm like, probably for the better. You know, if, if somebody's yeah. like, don't deal with that person because they, you know, they won't play the games. You probably didn't want to be in the room with them anyway. Right. So, so I don't, and I don't like, I don't do anything in ETS. I spend most of my world in the SBL AAR world. Right. Yeah. But I don't yeah. play the, I don't play the games. That's helpful. And this half hour has flown by. We'll have to do this again sometime. But we always like to end with this. And you've hinted at it a little bit. Next handful of years, conversations you're most interested in being a part of. What's at the top mm. of that list? Uh, man, what am I? I'm, I feel like I'm at a crest right now in life uh, where I've been. it's uphill for a long time. And then all of a sudden I'm coasting. Yeah. Like A lot of the ideas that people used to say, nah, that doesn't make any sense 10 or 15 years ago. They're all of a sudden going like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, what happened? <laughs> Push, you know, I was like pushing on this door forever. And then all of a sudden they just opened it and I'm in the room yeah. and I'm like, well now what? Right. Um, but I definitely am interested in helping, uh, less so academics, but more so pastors, uh, holding them accountable to what the text is saying and getting them mm -hmm. back in the biblical, like the biblical philosophy, uh, getting them in the thinking of the biblical authors and helping them to kind of sideline or turn down the volume on theology and tradition uh, a bit and turn up, turn up the volume on the biblical author's intellectual world. And there's a lot of different ways in which that needs to get worked out. And, um, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to writing shorter, more precise books, or actually hopefully encouraging other people to write these books as well, um, that are really helping people slice and dice what's going on in scripture, extending the thinking of scripture into 
very particular situations today. So that's good. Yeah. As a pastor, I look forward to that. Looking forward to get my hands on those. So uh, Dr. Johnson, thank you for your time today. Anything you want to plug or let people know about before we wrap up? Uh, Center for Hebraic Thought and the Biblical Mind. It's where we're, we're, we have lots of articles by scholars, podcasts, where we're trying to do this work, extending the thinking of scripture into all kind of relevant issues today. And so I, I love the work that we're doing there. I think is great. Uh, if, I, if I do say so myself, it's not my work. Yeah. It's the work of the scholars who are who are contributing to it. It's, it's been fantastic to watch scholars and get to commission articles on things that I'm interested in and, and then get the best thinking at kind of a layperson's level on that topic. Well, we'll link that in the show notes. And uh, thank you again. And thanks to all of you for listening to this latest episode. As always, you can uh, catch the show on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, rate and review the show. And we'll be back next week with another episode. 